We are in the third week of our Advent series, and we've looked at hope, uh, represented by the, the shortest candle on the Advent wreath, okay? And then we looked at peace, represented by the next shortest candle. Today, today the Rourke's lit the, uh, the candle of joy, the pink candle, and we're going to look at that this morning. In our text this morning um, that they read for us from Luke 2, you can turn to Luke 2, starting in verse 15. I'm not going to put this up on the screen for you, but open your device or open your scriptures, and you can follow along with that or kind of reread it at your own pace there. But the angels, they show up to the shepherds, and they proclaim good news of what? Great joy for all people, for today is born to you in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And in the heavens, they rip open and glory shines down on the shepherds and a whole host, a heavenly host, sings glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to mankind on whom his favor rests. And we talked about last week that how you read that really matters. He's not saying, oh, there's some of you who, who don't have his favor. He's saying his favor rests on all mankind. That's what he's saying. His favor is resting on all of you. So this really is good news of great joy. Let's pause for a minute. Who, how many of you are morning people? Raise your hand. Like really morning people. How many we got? Less than half. I'm surprised that there's that many. And, and uh, you get up how early? How many of you get up before six? How many of you get up before five? How many of you get up before 4.30? Whoa, look at them, the awkwardness. Let's stare. Okay, for a moment. Um, you wake up and you're ready to go, and there's, there's getting up. Like, I count myself, I didn't used to be a morning person, but I'm kind of a morning person now, and my body just kind of, I get up early. My kids have to be at school at 7.45. I like to be up before them. When my son comes downstairs, I like to be there, not like he wakes up first and I'm still in bed, you know? Like, I think some people operate that way, but... I don't, every time I woke up when I was a kid, my dad was downstairs. He had already made breakfast. Uh, later on, it was like, you make breakfast. But, you know, he was already up and he was getting ready for his day. He had already taken a shower and gotten dressed and was working on final grading because he was an English teacher and that kind of thing. Um, but there's people who wake up and they're just like, you know, like when you roll into Starbucks and the barista is just happy and it's like, you know, have you ever been there really early? I've been at Starbucks really early for meetings, like at 6 a.m. before. And they're like, hi, can I take your order? And I'm like, shut up. You know, my wife and I, we went to the Starbucks headquarters last week on a date. We both decided on Friday morning we're going to take some time. We went there, and um, we'd only been there one time before. How many of you guys have been there, by the way, to the Starbucks headquarters? I mean, it's an interesting, interesting place if you live in Seattle it's like, I don't know, 20 times bigger than every other Starbucks you've been in. Um, and everything is way more fancy. And there's like everything, it feels like it costs a lot more <laughs> too. But um, yeah, you look at the bags of coffee. We were going there to buy some Christmas presents and have our date. And every, it, was, it was like 10 o'clock, right? And I was still not awake. I didn't feel awake. And they were still smiling at me. And I'm like, I don't know how you're always on. Um, have you ever met anybody like that that's just always on, always happy? Always happy. Like, they're, every time you run into them. I, we had a friend back in Boise who just seemed always happy. And you know what I'm like? 
I'm like, you are not always happy. You cannot always be like that, you know? It's kind of like, how many of you have seen Office Space? You going to admit that in church? Ooh. I've seen it several times, and it makes me laugh so hard. But you know what I'm talking about when you talk about the, the happy, happy, like when Jennifer Aniston's working in the restaurant, if you haven't seen this, I'm not, I'm not necessarily going to recommend the film, but um, it, she's working in the restaurant and she's taking flack for not wearing enough pieces of flair, and there's this other co-worker who's always like, mm, let's put his picture up there for a minute. That's what he's like all the time, okay? How many of you know somebody like this? No? Yeah? Had friends like that before. The other kind of people that bother me, and I think um, Nate alluded to this without knowing it, but the other kind of people that bother me, something bad happens to them, and it's usually a Christian that I know. I'm not knocking on us, but somebody, usually a Christian I know, something really bad happens. Like they get in a car wreck, and they're like, you know what? I'm just so glad that this happened because now X, Y, or Z. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You're glad you got in a car wreck? And they, you know, they can kind of, I think they're very sincere. And I... But part of me inside is like, that's not for real. You can't be for real, right? And I'm like, I've met people who I think they're really for real. And other people, I'm like, you're just saying that because I'm the pastor. Like, you don't need to act that way, you know? Um, it bothers me because on one, one, on one side of the coin, I'm like, I don't believe you. And the other side is like, I want to believe you. And I don't, I don't live in that reality. I don't worship in my whole life that way. And you seem to. And I'm like, I'm a little bit jealous. So it bothers me. All right? In the middle of that tragedy, somehow you're praising Jesus, right? There's a reality there, though, that in the Christian world, in the Christian world, there's a tendency to quickly cover over the pain that we go through and the silence that we go through and the awful things that come our way and the things that we cause, that we cause our own problems and pain with. And we, you know... We want to use some cliche saying like praise Jesus or, and I'm not knocking any of you because several, in the last like six months, there's been like five of you that have said, you know, God won't give me something I can't handle. And I'm always like, yeah, that's not in your Bible. (laughs) That's not in your Bible. Okay, you know, and I'm not harping on those of you who I said that to. Um, But we want to use some kind of cliche like that. And I'm like, you're either not processing uh, the situation and the information deeply enough, or you're ignoring your situation altogether. You're kind of sweeping it under the rug. We talked about this last week. We talked about how you can look at the Psalms, and the Psalms don't do that. The Scriptures don't do that. You look at the Psalms, and there's all this, where the heck are you, God? I am ticked off at you, God. Why have you not fixed this situation? When are you going to show up? You, you're not even there. And that is in your Bible. And, he's, and the, the author of the Psalms is not going, God, you're not going to give me more than handle. He's like, no, you've given me way too much. And I'm at my wit's end, and I'm tired, and I'm lonely, and I'm angry. That kind of thing. And the Psalms gives us the language to help us deal with that more honestly about whatever it's going on with, because how we, how we deal with this really reveals what we believe about God. Okay? I want to show you another thing that um, kind of illustrates what we're all about, uh, especially as Americans. Let's put this next one up on the board. This is the Declaration of Independence, the first part of it. You can't see the lower half, and there's no way you can read that. I just want to bring it up as an example, okay? If you go read this, you can go Google it, go on Wikipedia or whatever. 
Um, this is a really important document, right? Right? Barry's like, no. Just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding, bro. Um, the, in the second paragraph, okay, uh, part of this, you will find this, you will find this phrase. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. We've had some trouble with that, <laughs> that one. And they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and what? We had a lot of trouble with that one too, right? The pursuit our right is not, notice how it's phrased, our right is not to just have happiness. Our right is to pursue happiness, because they're like, like somebody actually had to think about like, okay, but you might, we can't guarantee everyone's happy, but we want to guarantee that you can pursue it. Do we even have that guarantee? I, exhibit A, go back to all men are created equal. Whoa. And all men, I thought all men, all. Okay, well, we could go off on a whole tangent on there and have like a whole sermon series, maybe like all summer long about all that kind of stuff. Um, but my point is this. I submit that there is something better than happiness. Something deeper than happiness. Because happiness seems to be, and you've all probably heard this before, happiness is kind of like temporary. Like I bought something and it made me happy. Or I went on a date and it made me happy. I got to go to the movies and it made me happy. Or I got a new car and it made me happy. But does it last does it last? No. No. There's something, those things kind of seem to be momentary, you know. Um, there's something more, and I think it's called joy. And I think that's what's, we lit this candle this morning, we need to examine what that, what that joy really is. Because we don't want to celebrate Christmas, we don't want to sit here in Advent with this fake coffee barista joy. <laughs> You know, like, because that's not what our lives are really like. Our lives are a mix of happiness and sadness and anger and boredom and monotony and elation and, you know, both sides and everything in between, right? For being honest, it's all of that. You get the picture. So the Bible does not gloss over these real life situations and emotions. But we miss it sometimes. Like we read, this, we read this scripture like we read this morning in Luke 2. You read the Bible and you get the sense of these great moments in history. And we have all these, the big stories that you read in the Old Testament and all the other stuff that you haven't read or you don't want to read or you forgot about. And even in the New Testament, in the Gospels, we know the big highlight stories and we know some of the conversations Jesus had. But there's like, what about the rest of it? What about the day in, day out, nitty gritty worries and anxiety and all that stuff that's going on, all right? Because leading up to Luke 2, leading up to the birth of Jesus, I alluded to this the, or mentioned it a couple weeks ago, that page that's in between your Old and New Testament is like 400 years of silence. Like the prophets were speaking, they're like, turn your ways, and then the people go into slavery, and God is, quote-unquote, not with them. And we explored that a few weeks ago, really saying God is with them, but he's kind of like, well, you, I've been telling you to amend your ways, and now, now I'm going to see how you're going to, you're, you want to do it on your own, I'm going to let you do it on your own. And then he shows back up again, in and through this baby. But for 400 years, 
God's people have been living in oppression and they've been praying to their God for salvation. They don't have their own nation and they don't have their own home anymore. Rome has enslaved them. And in between the highlight moments are these other moments in the scriptures where life is just silent. It's silent. And it's hard for us to understand because we live 2,000 years later in kind of a middle class, you know, relatively speaking, a, real, a, a, a middle class lifestyle that's comfortable. And what we miss is that the Bible was written by oppressed people to oppressed people. People who didn't have everything at their fingertips. Instant gratification even the people who had everything wouldn't even know what that meant, you know? Maybe Caesar. And the question that these people, they, that they're, there's people writing to other people and they're all oppressed, the question that they wrestle, wrestled with throughout the whole biblical story arc, the question that they're dealing with more often than not is, where is God and what is he doing? Nothing's changed, right? Where is God and what is he doing? Because this question is everywhere. It's all over the scriptural narrative. And I want to look at a few of the stories that we find that are not your typical Christmas texts, but they illustrate this, and it'll make sense as we go along. Uh, it's from the book of Judges. It's the story of Gideon, not the first highlight story you normally jump to. It's usually like Abraham or Joseph or Abraham or, or it's twice Abraham, Moses. It's usually one of those guys, right? Um, you do have these other stories, Joshua and Elijah, and here's one about Gideon. And it says this, and I'm not going to put all this on the screen, but in Judges chapter 6, you can write that down and look it up later, starting in verse 7, it says, When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian. So the backstory is uh, Israel, Israel is being oppressed by the Midianites. He hears their cry. He sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. Now before I jump to the next part, I want you to, I want you to notice one thing there. It says, I, he sent them a prophet who said, and then the prophet speaks. And this is, like, we have all these other prophets in your Old Testament, but this one is a nameless prophet. Like, this prophet doesn't have a name. And he sets the groundwork for what's about to happen. And the context that I just read is that there's Egypt, you were slaves in Egypt, and there was an exodus, you were saved. And there were great miracles that happened in that story. And then the, then the, then the text continues. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, Lord, so this angel talking to him, Please, Lord, if the Lord is with us, and in your text you'll see one Lord is lowercase l and the other one is uppercase l. And so that is indicative of there's an angelic being talking to him, right? And he says to the being, lowercase l, if the Lord, God. So he's addressing this angelic being as, I don't know who you are, which means he goes, I'm not recognizing you 
as an angel. Okay? And he says, if the Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And by all this being you brought us out of slavery in Egypt and now we're enslaved again. Why has it all happened to us? And where are all these his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. So what is he saying? He's saying, listen, angel, listen, dude, or being, I grew up with veggie tales. I've heard the stories. Where is this God who does these miraculous things? As I've grown older, I'm aware of the pain and the silence of my people, and your stories don't mesh up with the story that I'm seeing day to day. So the picture, what's really the story starts out, Gideon is hiding. He's threshing his wheat in the wine press. He's hiding from the, from the bullies who want to take his lunch. Okay? He's basically asking, you've said all these stories. You said you are our God, and I've heard them all this time but I need some joy in my life. And where is this God? And what is he doing about my situation? That's what he's wrestling with. And so we've talked about two things that I want to remind you about in this Advent series. Number one, God is with you. Number two, God is for you. And Gideon is asking, if God is with me, and what? And if God is for me, so What? He is like, let me just throw some psalms at you. So what? You could say that. It sounds nice. But I want some change. I want something different. What, what he's doing, and all we want to do is jump to the end really quick and get things resolved. But the Bible just camps in this awkward moment. And he speaks back to God's messenger and says, yeah, big deal. Like, you want me to go do this, and you want me to fight for you, and you want me to save these people, but I, I need you to show me something, you know? And the story doesn't move on for a while. And at, at the end of the story, you know, Gideon defeats the Midianites, but he questions God all along the way. There's this famous uh, part in the story where he's throwing out fleeces, right? Does anybody remember this? Anybody heard this before? And he's basically like, here's this fleece, God. He's like, to know that you're serious and that you're going to be with me. In other words, like, in other words he's like, to know that I'm not nuts and that you're, I'm not seeing things and that you're actually speaking to me and that I'm not a crazy person, I'm going to throw this fleece out and if all the ground is dry and the fleece is wet, right, then I'll know it's you. And then he, God does that, and he goes, okay, just let me, allow you, let, let me question you. Let me challenge you, God, one more time. And then he says, okay, make the ground wet, but the fleece dry, right? And that happens. And then he's like, oh, no. I just tested God. I'm dead man. And the angel's like, it's cool. You're going to be all right. Right? Because we talked about that last week, right? The angels show up, and then the first reaction everybody has when they know it's an angel is what? Oh my gosh, I'm going to die. Right? Because angels are apparently frightening. Right? So go look at our little um, nativity out in the, in the foyer out there <laughs> in the lobby, and there's a nice little angel on the top of the manger, which the manger wasn't really this wooden house. You all know this, right? It was like a cave with like 
this is where you put the sheep, and there's probably like sheep stuff on the floor. That's where your Savior was born. Right? And if angels show up, they scare you to death. That's the context. And Gideon is like, I'm going to die. And the angel says, no. What I'm trying to do here in a roundabout way is it's great to say that God is with me and God is for me. But so is the nice fleecy blanket that I bought at Costco that makes me feel all warm and snuggly. And so is my car. It's with me and it's for me. And so is my smartphone. It's with me and it's for me. You know? And Netflix, because at least those things kind of give me some type of comfort, right? Like, I just need my, I need, to ha- I need to feel comfy and cozy and I need something at the end of the day that helps me not deal with all the garbage I had to deal with. You know? It's great to say that he's with me and he's for me, but this bottle or these opioids or this binge shopping at the mall or on Amazon, fill in the blank with whatever niche thing it is for you because everybody's got something. Everybody's got something. And those things, what we're saying is those things give us more comfort than God does. And I'm willing to wager that every single person, every single one of us in this room can relate to this. We feel this, right? We have felt it. And we're like, what is God doing? Academically, in our brains, we assent to the truth and acknowledge that, yes, he is here with us and he is for us. But where is he in my life? It doesn't matter if it's in the Exodus story where they waited for 400 years for God to rescue them. God didn't show up for 400 years. In fact, the dialogue that Moses has with God when he finally does show up is like, look, God, basically, this is not going to work. Why is it not going to work? Because you haven't been there. Even if you show up and do these things, these people don't remember you. They don't know you anymore. You take the story of Elijah. He's up on Mount Carmel, that experience when people... God's people don't respond and he runs away and he's pleading with God to take his life away. And so God brings the great fire and he brings the great wind and the earthquake. And every time in the text it says, God is not in those. Instead, he's in that still, small, almost silent voice. And God was silent for 400 years while his people were waiting in Egypt. All the great miracle stories in the scriptures they ultimately call us to remember and to trust that God is there with us in those silent moments. Remember Job. He's the epitome of these um, examples, right? How many of you have read Job? I mean, it's a great Christmas read because, because when we're talking about the light of the world coming into a world of darkness, you want to understand darkness, read Job. And it doesn't wrap it all up in a nice little present and go, here, problem solved. It doesn't do that. But after he's inflicted with awful physical ailments and he loses all of his physical possessions and all of his family, and he's asking God, what? Why? Why is this happening? What happens? When you get to the end, no answer is given. Instead, Job is only invited, 
um, kind of in an angry way by God. He's only invited by God to trust God more. He says, just trust me. You're not God. I am. Just trust me. These are the questions that we're wrestling with, that our neighbors are wrestling with. And it's not a new story. We're all wrestling with it. And we're kind of like, where are the nativities where God shows up and there's angels and it's, and it's awesome? Where are the Noels? Where is Emmanuel, God, with us right now in our lives? In the Advent story, this time of Advent, in, in the story of Christmas, what it invites us to do is to trust that in these moments where we don't feel like God is here working, He is. That's what this story is inviting us to trust and remember that He is working with us. That's why Jesus says after healing a lame man, and this guy, the, the, guy, the lame man at the pool of Bethsaida, for years he's wanting to be healed, and Jesus heals him on the Sabbath, and this controversy starts about that. And in response to the controversy, Jesus says in John 5, he answers them and says, my father is working until now, and right now I am working. Working. On the Sabbath, God is showing up. I want you to hold on to that phrase, I am working. Hold on to that as we keep going. Because in the English translation, we kind of miss some of the emphasis here. The Greek puts a lot more into this. It's the idea that from the very beginning of the universe, God has been working. And when he, when he says that word working, that God is working, it's a continual working. He has not stopped and he will not ever stop working in this world. He won't ever stop working in this world. He's working in this world right now. And in this, lame, in this lame man's life, who for years he sat at this pool begging, he has no one to help him, and it's like God is silent. And in the silence and the unanswered prayer request, God has not ceased to work. In fact, he's working right now. Paul picks up this idea. It just keeps flowing throughout the Scriptures. In Acts 17, when he's in Athens... And he's preaching at the synagogue there. And some of the philosophers, they hear what he's saying. So he's at this place called the Areopagus. We've talked about this before, also known as Mars Hill. And this is basically like going to where the United... Today would be like, let's go meet at the United Nations. Or let's go meet at the Geneva Convention or something like that. Right? And it's where the smartest, best minds are. And Paul is there. It's like, imagine preaching a sermon... This is the way I like to imagine it. I'm preaching a sermon, and everybody in the crowd is also like an awesome preacher. That's where Paul goes to, to say these things. And in the middle of his sermon in Acts 17, in verse 24, he says this, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Don't miss that. There's allotted periods and boundaries for all the nations. Verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their, I love this, and perhaps feel their way toward him. Feel their way toward him and find him. I don't know about you, that feels like a lot of my life. Like I'm groping around in the darkness, okay, at certain moments, and you're like, 
I'm feeling around, I'm feeling my way toward you. I'm feeling my way toward you. That I might find you. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. In him we live and move and have our being. This, these are amazing statements. These are amazing statements that we couldn't unpack if we sat down and thought about it for hours. The time periods and the geographical boundaries of the nations, God has determined those. He is at work in those. That's weird to think about. Seriously, even in recent history, the great wars and conflicts, the headlines that you read in your newspaper every day, it's not saying that God made those happen. What he's saying is God is working in the midst of all of these events and situations. He's not saying that all the bad things in your life came from him. He's just saying God is there with you. He's right here. He's right here when the highest powers are moving and working, when there are big internal international summits. God is working in all of it because he's not far from any, from any one of us, is what Paul says there. He's not far away from anybody. He wants us to see him. So he's like, I'm going to work and hopefully you will feel your way toward me and come to know me. The text says, therefore in him we live and move and have our being. What Paul is saying about this is this. God isn't somewhere outside of this creation and every once in a while he has to intervene in it. He's saying, no, God is right here. And it's in him that we live and move and have our being. He is in his creation right now. And he's always been a part of it. And he's always been actively working in it. And he finishes by saying, as some of your poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. But let's ask the question again. So what? Right? Because these are you might not be asking these questions. You might be having a great Christmas season or whatever. But I know I asked you to consider this a few weeks ago that there's a bunch of you in the room and a bunch of people that you know outside of this room that are not having a great time right now. And they're going to say, yeah, I can agree with that intellectually. I can agree with that intellectually, but do you really, really believe it? Because there are moments of pain and silence and unanswered questions and cries in the middle of the night that keep us up, and there's stress and anxiety and fears and disappointments and the need to keep producing so we can better our station in the world, and it never ends. And Do we really believe that God is right here, right now, in our midst, working in our lives? You go back to the question of Gideon, how many of you have thrown fleeces out to God? Like, I need you to show me. I need you, if I do this, will you do this? If I stop doing this, will you do that? If I start doing this, will you do this? How many of you have thrown out a fleece before? Yeah? You know? I've had a lot of fleeces. I've had a lot of things that were like that in my life. One of them, I'll be very truthful to you. This doesn't mean I don't love you guys at all, but I did not want to move to Seattle. Some of you are like, amen. <laughs> not for me, but you, well, maybe not for me. You didn't want me to move. I don't know. But some of you are like, yeah, my life was perfectly fine. Right? And I'm like, God, why would you, you know? And I'm like, okay, well, if you really want me to go there, then this. 
and that'll happen, and then this, and then that'll happen, and then this will happen, and then that'll happen. And, and I'm like, yeah, none of that's going to happen, or maybe a few of these things are going to happen, but not all those things are going to happen for sure, because I don't want to uproot my family. Because how many of you have uprooted your family before? Moved out of state? And how many times have you done it? And I know a lot of you have. You've told me. And it's, it's so easy, right? And you leave your family and your friends and your church and whoever in another state. And you're like, I don't know if I, is this going to last? Am I going to hate it? Am I going to leave? Am I going to move again? What are my kids thinking? How are they doing? All that stuff, right? So I'm, I'm throwing out my fleeces, and you know what? Dang it, God's like, yeah, that's going to happen, and that's going to happen. And I'm still like, no. You know and what the clincher usually is, is your significant other. In my case, my wife's like, I think, we should, I think you should like, shut up and start listening. <laughs> you know? Um, what I'm really doing there is I want an excuse that, because we were actually, we were going through a hard time at that point, and we were like, what are we going to do next? And it feeling really unsure about things. And, you know, we throw out these fleeces, and really what we're doing then is we're, we're, we're throwing out an excuse to not believe in God, to, not, to say that he's not with me and he's not for me and he's not working in this. And I want my disappointments and my hardship and the hard time, I want it to disqualify his presence in my life. And we need to be honest that there are these moments where we think that we're basically like giving up on you, God, and the church. But really what I'm saying in, in, that, in that moment, and what you're probably doing too, is that you're giving up on yourself. God's like, I've not given up on you. You're just choosing not to see me here in this hardship that you're going through. What I've come to realize is that the years of pain and silence, you might, and I'm not, again, Think back to the guy with the face, the barista face, the happy flair guy in the restaurant. We are not saying that you ignore all of that pain and silence and don't deal with it, right? But what I am saying is that those things can actually be good because God will never leave you in those things. He will never, ever give up on you. And I, I should be thankful for those moments. You see, the infant that was laid in the manger was at work, not just being a baby, but he's at work with nations. Right from the very beginning, he's at work with nations and kings and shepherds and magi, and he's at work in Herod's court, who is the pawn of Caesar Augustus. And the infant who was at work then is the same God who is at work right now in your life, and he's at work in my life, and he's at work in the life of your spouse and in your kids and in your neighbors and your coworkers and your friends. And he's at work even in the people who show up in your life and then you're like, I want nothing to do with that person because that person is hopeless and that person ticks me off and that person's a pain and they drain me and he's at work in their life. And there's sometimes you don't feel like that you want to even deal with that. But the Christmas story invites us again and again and again to believe that God is at work in everything, everywhere, at all times. We're not ignoring or sweeping the pain under the rug and going, yay, God. That doesn't seem to work anymore. What seems to work is being honest with each other and then going, where is God in our midst? And then helping each other reconnect with that hope and that peace and the joy that God gives. He's not just in the good, miraculous moments. He's there in the pain and the suffering and the silence. And I, you know what? 
you may think, and this is not just to do the comparison contrast thing, but as part of my vocation, I get to go visit people in the hospital and in their homes when they can't get out, when they're bedridden, or they're in a care facility, and I, and I do that pretty often. And some of the people that I go visit, your brothers and sisters that are part of this church, and some of them do not have the use of their limbs anymore. Some of them are on drugs that don't let them use the, use, speak well anymore. Some of them don't even get out of bed ever, and they have to physically be rolled over by other people. And all the things that go with that, right? And those people, they could sit there and go, you know, my life is, where's God? And I don't know why it is. I'm like, I need to be taking lessons from you now. And I'm the pastor. And I'm like, I go visit them and they're like, it's all good. God's with me. I was, you know, and they share amazing things with me about, and they're, and they're positive, and they're not faking it. They're not faking it until they make it. They're like, God is here, even in this. He is with me. He is for me. I see him working. I mean, for goodness sakes, I, one lady who's at the Washington Care Center, one of our older uh, people in the congregation, uh, Halloween, when I went to visit her right before her birthday, she's cut candy out, and she's allowing all of the staff to come trick-or-treat when they come to take care of her, you know? And, and she's like, God bless you when they come, you know? It's like it never stops. Like, she's like, no, God's with me even in this. She's not happy about it by any means. There's a whole, those of you who've gone to visit her, you'll, 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 she'll tell you she's not happy with it, but in the same breath, she'll be like, but God's here, and I know he is, and I'm, and I'm being very real with that. He's not just in the good, miraculous moments. So, I wonder what it is that you're dealing with today, right now. Do you trust that he is working? Because even if you do, even in the midst of your pain, you can trust him, and he will give you joy. Because your story is a part of something more. And I'm going to invite the, the band to come up. And I'm going to finish this out with a couple of implications. We're going to take communion in a minute. And uh, for those of you who are new with us, we have an open table. And what that means is if you believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, uh, you believe that he lived and he died and he rose again, then he invites you to come to his table. It's his table. He invites you to come to his table and remember him okay and the way we do that is when you come forward you can come to the sides or to the middle and you dip the bread in the wine and then you go back to your seat and hold it you can pray and then we take it together after after a few moments of silence but i want to leave you with a few uh, implications here first implication is this if god's presence gives us hope and his favor gives us peace then our persistent awareness of god's Continual working provides us reason to have joy. And that's very specifically phrased. Our persistent awareness. You have to work on your awareness. That doesn't just happen, right? Our persistent awareness of God's continual working provides us reason to have joy. Because when you work at being aware where he's at, you're like, I see you. 
I see you doing these things. It's not manufactured, happy, fake, praise Jesus, barista happiness, okay? Uh, it's even in the midst of real stuff like pain and disappointment and silence, we can still rejoice because there is a God and he is here and he is with us and he's for us. And I might not ever know why this bad thing is happening in my life, but there's going to be an end to that pain eventually and God's working through everything to bring people to himself. That's what the text says to us. So I can have joy even in the midst of pain. The second implication is Advent invites us to consider to truly consider if we really believe in miracles. Just sit with that for a minute. Because we're talking about a miracle here. That the God of the universe would be born a baby. It's miraculous. Do you really believe in miracles? Do you really believe? And he shows up after 400 years of silence. You believe that unanswered prayers can be answered and that God's going to show up and do something amazing because he's always been working. The third implication is this. Don't avoid the silence or the pain or the struggle or the suffering or whatever. Put, that, put whatever word you like in there. Don't be so quick to cover up the pain and the awkwardness with something, with anything. Don't be afraid of the pain and the unanswered questions. The life of faith is that we are able to have those questions and voice them and come together and deal and not run away. No matter how you were taught or, or raised or grown up when conflict comes, that's part of the reason we don't, know how to ha- we don't know how to have a conflict with God. And God's like, I'm God. Like, read my story. Conflict, conflict, conflict. I can deal with it. Can you deal with it? It might be in dealing with whatever it is you're trying to avoid that you're going to experience some redemption. It might mean that you need to go back to those moments of pain and silence to really find what it is that you need to be redeemed from. Also, I just want to kind of say, kind of as a tangent here, if you are struggling with joy, you really need community. If you're struggling with that, you need community, and not just on Sunday morning. Kinfolk groups are not a cliche. Small groups whatever you want to call them that churches have. They're not just there because churches are supposed to have them. It's where life happens. It's where you have a whole other family, friends that are going to bear the weight and share the struggles with you. Joy is always ultimately something that is expressed in community. Because when something good happens, do you keep it to yourself? When something's good, when something's amazing, When you get a new car, when you get a new house, when you win the lottery, you might hide that. You might hide that. That might be a good idea. (laughs) But if something good happens, a baby is born. Do you hide it away? No. When something joyful happens, you have to express it. You tell people, okay? This is what the shepherds do. Go back to Luke 2, right? The angels come, and what do they do after they hear the message? They run as fast as they can to Bethlehem, and they start telling everybody and repeating it over and over. We have this good news. Emmanuel, God with us. And here's the last implication. When I submit my entire 
my entire life story my, to the sovereignty of God. That means he's in charge. And you're like, yeah, I, I submit to you. And here's the deal. We don't like that word submit, but I mean, for goodness sakes, the God of the universe comes as a baby. He has submitted himself to us in that very moment at this joyful time when we need a Messiah. He submits himself. He's a baby. And he submits himself again on the cross. And we have a problem submitting ourselves. We don't like that word. You want, you want to be in charge of my life? He's like, yeah, if you feel your way towards me and find me, I think you might trust me, even in the hard stuff. You will encounter joy in all areas of your life. Every single moment. And so do I want to rob him of his sovereignty? Do I want to, by not sharing with him my pain and my failures and mistakes, I better not take those things away from him because he wants to use them and redeem them because he's always been here and he's always been with me and he's always been for me and he's always been working. The Christmas story, we're, gonna, we're coming, I know this is getting a little bit longer, but we're, we're getting to next week and then Christmas right after that, Christmas Eve. It's ultimately a foreshadowing of, of what's to come, that God himself enters into creation and he experiences pain. Jesus actually says a prayer, right? He says a prayer right before he's crucified and he experiences betrayal and he's forsaken by his friends and in the midst of his greatest need on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's no answer. Scriptures don't avoid this stuff. There's no answer. We like to jump to Easter and resurrection, but it's important to sit in that unresolved moment where he is alone. And he hung there for several hours in pain and in silence. And it's only because of that pain and silence in his life that we can experience resurrection and redemption and joy, true joy, and have hope and peace. Those things don't just happen because, yay, it happened. It came out of suffering. You see, where I, you see what we did there? It's important to sit in that unresolved moment. So we take the bread and wine and remember, we remember a God. We remember a God who understands us. He understands you. And He's with you. And He's for you. And He's working in our midst and He loves you. He's all around us all the time. And so on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup of wine after supper in the same way and he poured it out and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant shed for you whenever you drink this. Do this to remember me. And so I invite you right now when you're ready as the band plays, I invite you to come forward, take your time, and let's remember him.